BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey guys, welcome to the Bustle Huddle. I'm your host, Jada Gomez, and happy Halloween. It's a huge, huge holiday for me. It's like my favorite thing next to Christmas. And also, happy reminder that we're less than one week out from the midterms. So please make sure that you get out there and vote. I know the time flies by, but it's upon us and we've got to do what we've got to do. So today's guest host is my desk mate, <laughs> Celia Darrow. Hey. How's it going? Good. How about you? Good. So I know that you're a Halloween fan and obviously you've got the midterms on your plate. Yeah. October, November, the fall is just pretty crazy. So you're the senior news editor here. Can you tell us a little bit about what you do? So as the senior news editor, I oversee our op-ed and personal essay content and any special projects. And I know that you're a big Halloween fan just like I am. Mm -hmm. So I definitely want to switch up our 30-second intro game with a little bit of a Halloween twist. Ooh, okay. Are you ready? Yeah. Every Halloween costume you've ever worn in 30 seconds. Great. All right. Ready? Go. Okay, there was, I was a witch, I was a spider queen, I was Pikachu for like three years in a row, but all while I was in college. <laughs> I have been, if I get into the couple's costumes, I've been uh, Maud Lebowski and the dude. I've been Jay of Jay and Silent Bob. Okay. I have been Wendy Peppercorn from The Sandlot with squints. Um, and of course, I've been Buttercup, uh, the Princess Bride. Woohoo! That was good. Honestly, we can talk all day about like Halloween and how much we love getting dressed up and being Disney princesses. But the truth is we're living in some really scary times right now. And it can really feel like the end of the world with the midterm elections coming up and everyone just feeling so hopeless. And I don't have to remind you that some terrifying things have happened in the past two years in the Supreme Court, I mean, just a couple of weeks ago, in Congress and the administration as a whole. And these things are especially terrifying if you're a woman, especially if you're not white, and especially if you're queer or trans. Yeah, I think that's very true. And that's why everyone is kind of looking to the midterms right now in 2018 to be a turning point. Absolutely. And it's a promising time, but it's also kind of confusing, which is why you helped with the creation of Bustle's What the Fact, which I think is just so genius and perfect at this particular time. Exactly. So Bustle's news team released a midterms package called See You Next Tuesday, which include an article called What the Fact. Fact stands for FAQ, and uh, it addresses all of the questions that people might just be too scared to ask, even their friends or family. Yeah, and I think that that is such a great safe space for people who have questions that they're embarrassed about, but they really need to know the answers to them, especially when the stakes are so high. Which, speaking of, I love that the first question in the FAQ is literally, what are midterms? Yeah, it's the most 
basic question, technically, but it's one that maybe if people were less afraid to ask and more willing to find out exactly what they meant, then maybe we would see a higher voter turnout at the polls. Absolutely. And that is really the main goal um, with the election coming up. And we want people to know exactly why it's important for them to get out there and have a high voter turnout. So let's break down that one basic question for the listeners. So midterms are nationwide elections that happen between presidential elections. So you'll see we had the big presidential in 2016 and we had one in 2012. The midterms are in 2014. A big part of them is electing members of Congress because the House of Representatives, they serve two-year terms. So they're up for re-election every two years. U.S. senators serve six-year terms, so some of them are up for re-election. But you also elect local politicians to represent you. You can elect your governor. You can re- elect your state senators, your state Supreme Court. You can elect judges, municipal positions, uh, so on. And there are also ballot questions, which I think a lot of people ignore. But ballot questions are super important, and they can include measures such as legalizing marijuana or raising the minimum wage or affecting how your health care is handled. Yeah, and a lot of these decisions that we get to vote on will make change at very local levels, which is really important. So why do these matter more than any previous midterms? I feel like I've heard more about these midterms than in years past. So first with that, I actually want to address that midterm elections are always important and we should always, always, always be voting in midterm elections. But right now, it does feel a lot of people are saying this is the most important election of our generation. And that's because with Trump in the White House, we're seeing a lot of these protections for marginalized communities disappear. And we're seeing increased violence, like in Charlottesville, where Heather Heyer was killed. And we've also seen that this weekend when 11 people were killed at a Jewish synagogue. And that kind of hate is not always strongly condemned by Trump and the Republican Party, which many people see as a real problem since Republicans control basically everything. And what does that actually mean? So Republicans control the White House, both houses of Congress, and with the confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh onto the Supreme Court, we lost a a swing vote. And so right now the Supreme Court has a more conservative slant. But for the most part, people are focusing on the fact that Republicans control both the Senate and the House of Representatives. And so when a party controls both the Senate and the House, what privileges do they actually enjoy and what does that mean for our government? So we saw this most recently in the confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh. Uh, the Supreme Court decides whether or not to confirm a Supreme Court nominee to the to the court, the highest court in the land. Congress is the body that pushes through laws like the tax plan or health care or immigration legislation. And because that majority of senators and representatives are Republican, it's a lot easier for them to push laws through and get it to the president's desk to sign. And so how can these midterms change things? I think for us to understand how the midterms could change things, we kind of have to understand where things are at right now, which means I'm going to throw a bunch of numbers at you. So please stick with me. We're ready. We're with you. (laughs) Um, So right now there are 51 Republicans Mm -hmm. and 49 Democrats in the Senate. Technically, there's 47 Democrats and two independents. But for clarity's sake, let's just say 49. Mm -hmm. And then in the House, there's 435 members of the House of Representatives. So in order to have control of the House, you have to have 218 seats. Right now, Republicans have that. Obviously, the Democrats don't. 
This year in the midterms, every representative is up for re-election. They come up for re-election every two years. In the Senate, they serve six-year terms, and so that means that only about a third is up for re-election this year. So for the midterms, the Republicans, they just need to hold on tight. They need to hold on to their seats. But with Democrats, they need to hold on and then they need to gain some. So they have more of a challenge ahead of them. But historically, the midterms don't actually go well for the president's party. And so Democrats actually have a real chance of taking at least one of the houses of Congress, if not both. These numbers are really putting things into perspective. I think when you get to actually like identify what's needed for change or what's needed for the status quo, it really just makes a lot more sense. What are some of the issues that are at stake here? Well, I think with the issues, that's when you really get into the scary stuff. And since it's Halloween, we prepared scary stories to show you what's really seriously at stake here. Okay, here we go. His scary stories definitely scare me. Well, it is Halloween, so let's hear the first one. Within the next couple years, before 2020, imagine another seat does come up on the Supreme Court. The candidates that you vote on in your local U.S. Senate race on Election Day are the people who will decide whether or not to confirm whoever President Trump may nominate. And if Senate candidates who have a track record of voting against or standing against abortion rights prevail on Election Day, then you're looking at a future in which there would be enough votes on the Supreme Court to greenlight restrictions on abortion and other reproductive rights for decades to come. Because remember, these are lifetime appointments. So that's an especially scary story, considering what's happened in the past few weeks with Kavanaugh on the Supreme Court. But something I'm pretty sure our listeners are wondering is just how Supreme Court seats open up in the first place. Well, there are a couple of different ways. Uh, One of the most common is they retire, like we saw with Justice Anthony Kennedy. But then also, you know, it is Halloween and this might be a little bit morbid, but they can also pass away. Abortion rights are on the ballot in a few states on Election Day this year. If you live in one of those states and don't educate yourself about those anti-abortion initiatives or don't get out and vote on them, you'll wake up on November 7th and potentially see some defeats for reproductive rights. Then there are two places where proposed amendments to those states' constitutions would make clear that they do not protect a woman's right to an abortion. If you live in Alabama, you're going to see Alabama Amendment 2 on your ballot which would make it explicit state policy to recognize and support the sanctity of unborn life and the rights of unborn children, including the right to life. And if you live in West Virginia, you'll see West Virginia Amendment 1 on your ballot, which is similar. If passed, it would add language to the state constitution that says, nothing in this constitution secures or protects a right to abortion or requires the funding of abortion. So to be clear, none of these three ballot measures will actually roll back abortion rights on their own. But abortion rights groups say that if the Supreme Court moves to roll back Roe v. Wade or even just greenlight more abortion restrictions, these initiatives would pave the way for these states to cut abortion access. So this one definitely scares me. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty scary for a lot of women. And I think a lot of people are looking to find out what they can do about it. And if you don't live in Alabama or West Virginia, one of your best options is going to be donations. So you can consider donating to national organizations that are working in these areas, but you also can look into local organizations that are doing the work in the state itself and donate your funds directly there. The current health care law 
protects pre-existing conditions. And that includes a whole range of things, virtually any kind of chronic disease, if you have diabetes, and things like if you've had an eating disorder in the past, even down to asthma and acne could be considered pre-existing conditions. Currently, the law ensures that insurance companies cannot charge you more for having had those conditions in your medical history. Many Republicans who are up for re-election this year have pledged to protect those pre-existing conditions. However, the Trump administration is currently attempting to strike down that protection for pre-existing conditions in the court system. On top of all that, Trump's administration is also pushing for more of what are known as short-term insurance plans. And those don't have to cover essential services like maternity care or mental health or even prescriptions. I've heard a lot of people talking about the Affordable Care Act and just a lot of people that I know who are relying on it and they're really afraid of it going away. Yeah, it's particularly terrifying for people with pre-existing conditions um, and people with disabilities. I actually have been working on this story about activism and I spoke to an activist with disabilities and she described this to me as basically Congress is intending to cut billions of dollars from the only insurance plan that is paying to keep disabled people alive. This is really terrifying. So you decided that you weren't going to vote, that you are too busy to vote, that your vote doesn't matter anyways, that you live in a safe state where the stakes just aren't real for you. You're going to wake up the morning of November 7th and find that the candidates who won are the candidates who don't share your values and who promote the kind of policies that you don't stand for or that will actually negatively affect your life or even harm you. And especially if it's a close race, you do not want to be waking up the morning after the election wondering, once you see the results, whether you could have done more or if you could have done something to prevent that or to make a difference. Okay, that really is the scariest one of them all. Yeah, I mean, you're basically letting other people decide your future, and I don't know what's scarier than that. And another scary thing is the amount of people that don't really believe that their vote even matters at all. Yeah, totally. Speaking of horror stories, let's reveal the voice behind those scary stories, our deputy news editor, Katie Thompson. I mean, I can be a horror story sometimes, let's be real. (laughs) I feel like we all can. And honestly, Katie's another deskmate, so I think we've all seen ourselves at our worst. (laughs) (laughs) A little bit of both. And we couldn't have an episode about the midterm elections without having you here. And what better place to intro you to this convo than to talk about voting? Thanks for having me. So something that's really important for me to get off my chest with this midterms in particular, is that it's always been really important in my family for people to vote, considering that I'm biracial. Having a Black parent and a Latin parent, it's always been really important for me to exercise my right to vote. Like, I remember my grandparents talking about people, like, putting dogs on them or, like, throwing fireworks at them to, like, not be able to vote off the line. So it was always a very real thing. And I think that people don't understand that voter suppression is still very real. Maybe it's not fire hoses and dogs anymore, but there are still tactics to keep people from voting. I think it often just like looks like red tape. It looks like oh, it's just a simple little red tape for you to get to vote, but it's actually much deeper than that. Can you tell us a little bit about how much your vote actually counts no matter where you live? I feel like a lot of people think, oh, it's just my one vote. It doesn't really matter, or all of this stuff is rigged, or there's some kind of conspiracy theory. But 
really, it, it does matter. Every single vote does. Yeah, I mean, there's precedent for elections coming down to tens of votes or hundreds of votes. And in that scenario, if you are invested in the outcome, you don't want to be thinking the day after election day when in a, a race that did end up being important to you was decided by, say, 250 votes uh, that, you know, you could have made a difference there. I definitely wanted to bring up the point of people making sure that they're absolutely registered to vote. There are some times when people will think that they're registered, but they're actually not. What are some ways to make sure that you are ready on Election Day? So you can look online on like vote.org, but if you want to be completely sure, one of the best ways is to email or call your local Board of Elections and they can tell you exactly what your registration status is. Yes, we really urge everyone to do that. So this midterms has definitely been one for the books in terms of motivating people to step up and do things that they're afraid of, particularly women. Well, I think there are two major developments in the last several months that have really fired people up. We saw Brett Kavanaugh get confirmed to the Supreme Court, which brought up a lot of complicated feelings about the ability of our country to believe women's stories. And another story off the Kavanaugh confirmation was just its potential effect on women's reproductive rights. And a lot of women don't want to see abortion access restricted, uh, birth control access restricted. We do not know how Brett Kavanaugh would rule if a case involving abortion access or birth control access were to reach the Supreme Court. But, you know, a lot of people are just scared right now for what the future will hold in that arena. Also, I think it's important to note that after Trump was elected in 2016, women saw that they weren't being represented in Congress and in politics. And so they started running themselves. And we saw we saw an influx of women candidates running for office. And I think that has been another way that women voters have been fired up because they're seeing themselves finally represented in the candidates. And this is a great segue to Erica Abdelatif's story about canvassing despite her fear of going door to door. Let's hear her tell it in her own words. My name is Erica Abdelatif. I'm an editor here at Bustle. I recently started canvassing because the state of politics really made me feel afraid. When I look at the way our politicians that are currently in office are handling issues that affect my day-to-day, issues that affect the rights of my friends, it made me feel so terrified The thing that really set me off was the Kavanaugh hearings and realizing that Congress really just let this one slide. The fact that they forced this this nominee through without appropriate investigation or an appropriate set of hearings, without hearing from all of the witnesses, it made me feel really concerned and it made me feel really angry. And I felt like, you know, I need to do something with the things that I'm feeling. I can't just continue to sit in bed and eat ice cream. (laughs) I need to do something that's tangible and makes me feel like I'm participating. As I started talking to friends who were more politically active than me, I saw that consistently each of them told me that canvassing was the number one way to actually create change. Personally, and I'm sure a lot of people can relate with this, I hate having people 
come to my door. If anybody comes knocking that I'm not anticipating, I like will turn off my Netflix. I will hide in the kitchen. I'll turn off all the lights, make it as clear as possible that no one is home. Just because who wants to talk to a stranger? But I went out and I did it. And I, I was really surprised by what a positive experience it was and what an inspiring experience it was. There definitely were a couple things that were off-putting that happened while we were out. But to be honest, nothing happened that was so scary that it would make me feel like I couldn't or shouldn't do this again. We actually did have one guy, he answered the door, and he like was talking about how he was at the car show earlier and everyone there was a Republican and they were prepared to beat up Democrats if any showed up. And it just was like a very surreal moment to be like, wow, uh, you're talking to three women who are pretty clearly Democrats, <laughs> very boldly about how you want to beat Democrats up. But, you know, I think in all those situations, because I also grew up in a pretty conservative area and in a conservative family. And, and so, yeah, there are some situations that feel like, oh, no. But then, you know, you get enough under your belt where you're like, oh, this, is, this isn't so bad. You know, you're not out there to change anybody's mind. You're not out there to get into debates. You're out there to inform people who want that information. I can honestly say I feel so much better after doing this. My first time going out was the day that Kavanaugh was actually confirmed. And it was really interesting because the day before, when we knew that the vote was coming, I felt really depressed and I signed up to do this because I couldn't even see the light at the end of the tunnel. I was like, this is really, really bad for America. And I went out with a couple friends and we all got those push notifications saying that he had been confirmed and that the vote was final. And we were all surprised because none of us felt you know, that dismayed by it because we had spent the entire morning out on the streets talking to voters and meeting people who actually were uninformed and needed someone to talk to them and someone to share their perspective. And it was a really uh, impactful morning for us. And since then, I've actually gone out, I think, two other times. And I have plans to go out three more times <laughs> before the midterms because it has become such an outlet for my frustration and such a positive way for me to transform those feelings of fear into something empowering. We don't want to be in a situation like we were in in 2016 where we wake up and ask, what could I have done to have changed this situation? What could I have done to make sure that people whose voices matter are getting out there and speaking up? We can't ignore the fact that beyond campaigning and groundwork, women are actually running for office, and in fact, more than ever before, which is super promising. It's especially important because our representation right now in Congress is so low. There are 107 women in Congress, and there are 529 members overall, so that's about 20%. That is so low. And there's a really impressive number running in these elections this year. Uh, these numbers are from the Center for American Women in Politics, 
there are 23 women running for Senate, 237 women running for the U.S. House, 16 running for governor, and 3,388 running for state legislatures across the country. Yeah, that's so incredible. We were lucky to speak with women from across the country running for office this election day about what they're hopeful about, what worries them the most, and what fears they've confronted this election day. So my name is Gina Ortiz-Jones, and I am running for Texas's 23rd Congressional District. I worked in national security for 14 years. I started off as an intelligence officer in the Air Force, uh, deployed to Iraq. I served under Don't Ask, Don't Tell. So I will be the first out member of Congress, period. I'm also a first-generation American. I went to the kind of high school where you start with 900 kids, only 500 graduate. A woman having a baby in Texas is five times more likely to die during that process than if she had that baby in California. And I think that there is a direct correlation between that and the fact that there are only uh, there are 36 people honored to represent um, Texas and Washington, and only three of them are women. So, you look, representation matters and no small part in our health care. As a veteran, as somebody that worked in public service as a civil servant, I don't personally or professionally come from the wealth traditionally needed to get into politics, and that's unfortunate. But I think, look, what we've seen here is that, you know, if you have not only a record of public service, if you've got, frankly, the moral courage to fight for your district, um, that's what the voters want. When we look at turnout across Texas, it is off the charts. People know what's at stake. I'm Catalina Cruz. I am running for the New York State Assembly in the 39th Assembly District in New York. I think the number of women, the number of first-time voters, the level of anger at, to what we're seeing happen around us. It's, it's so different. I don't think I've ever seen anything like this except in stories you know, about the civil rights movement. I think one of my biggest concerns is complacency. I think you know, we tend to be the kind of society that we get really angry for a couple of months on an issue, we fight for it, and then all of a sudden you forget it happens. And for me, one of the things that's really lighting a fire under my feet is making sure that we don't just sit and wait. I grew up undocumented. I spent about 13 years uh, living as an undocumented American. The day the president got elected, and then fast forward to the day he announced DACA was ending. When those two things happened, I was like, this is it. I have to put myself out there and run. I'm Katie Hill, and I'm running for Congress in California's 25th district, which is the last Republican-held seat in L.A. County. Something I'm feeling really optimistic about right now is the amount of grassroots energy that we're seeing, especially among young people. I'm so excited uh, with the number of young people who are turning out, even young people, really young people, young girls and teenagers who are really excited about this election, who are getting their parents involved, people of color, people in lower income communities who have never really been reached out to before. On the flip side, the same thing is kind of what makes me nervous, right, is that people who we are depending on in order to win are the, the same you know demographics as people who don't normally show up in midterms and that we if something happens you know there's a car accident on the way or there are lines at the polls because there's not a history of voting like they're, they're often the ones that'll get like discouraged and and give up and we can't afford that this time so this is about turnout this is an election about turnout it's funny because it's when I'm thinking about the fears that I've had to overcome during this campaign, I was not comfortable with public speaking. When it came to talking in front of groups about myself, me as a candidate for Congress, I was not comfortable at all. And I remember getting so, so nervous in the beginning. But over the course of the 19 months, I've gotten 
you know, I speak in front of hundreds and hundreds of people all the time and you don't even get butterflies anymore. So to me, this is one of those perfect examples of how when you, when you do something enough, you, you just get comfortable enough, you get comfortable with it. So what I would say to people is that when you are afraid of something, you kind of just have to do it and, and it gets easier. I felt like this was critically important. I felt like I was going to be able to have an impact and that my district is one of the most important districts that could determine the fate of this election. And I knew that I had something to add to this. My name is Banji Williams. I'm running for Congress in the 1st District of Virginia. We've had a spike in absentee voting in our district. And with some of our precincts reporting at 90 to 100 percent, it lets me know that people are motivated and engaged about the midterm election. Midterms have a large voter drop-off here in the 1st District. So I'm inspired by the energy that I'm seeing out on the ground. I'm afraid people may feel discouraged about our country. They may feel like they don't have a voice and their concerns aren't being heard. But I want to let them know that I, I understand how they feel because I felt the same way when my voice wasn't heard by my congressman. As a woman of color, I didn't know what to expect from the people in the district. And that fear has subsided greatly because I have not only Democrats supporting me, but Republicans supporting me. And that says, I'm bringing that divide together. These races are not cheap. Help us fundraise, throw fundraisers. Like I said, knock on doors. Come to events, especially women of color. That has been my biggest, my biggest, um, obstacle, I think, is actually getting more women of color to come out to political events because this affects their lives. You know, you can't expect someone else to vote for you. This is our time. This is their time, especially younger women. Join some of the educational groups like Emerge, Emily's List, Wellburn. Talk to other women and Indivisible. Um, the huddles, get involved, start running for board of supervisor, board of education, start taking control now because we have the knowledge, we have the passion, we have the ability, and we should do it. Last year, we had house raises that were determined by fewer than 100 votes. Here in Virginia, we had Shelly Simons, she lost because they had to resort to a drawing that pulled the name out of a hat. That was one vote. That meant three votes could have decided that she had won. Um, you know, I look at it this way. There are 40, there's a 40% drop-off rate in my district. That means four out of 10 people are not voting. That's four people not showing up for their neighbor. Every Everyone has a moment where a teacher or a nurse or a stranger did something special to make a lasting impression, right? What if no one shows up for you when you need it? We have to show up for our friends, our family, our neighbors. And one way that we all can do that is by voting. 
And finally, we wanted to end this episode on a note from Erin Luz Cutraro, founder of She Should Run. If you're feeling more motivated than ever to make a difference and want to know what you can do beyond voting next Tuesday, there are definitely some actions that you can take for maximum impact. And you'll especially want to listen if you didn't get a chance to register to vote. Let's be real, things happen. But there are still very real ways that you can make a difference. My name is Erin Los Cutraro, and I am the founder and CEO of She Should Run. And I am feeling both excited and nervous. I know we are going to see a number of tremendously exciting stories, and we're also going to see some women who have put themselves out there bravely, and and they're going to lose. And, you know, my hope is that we celebrate them all and recognize this historic moment in time and celebrate this so that we can continue the momentum beyond Election Day. With only one week to go, here's what I would recommend to do. First, just to acknowledge that it's uh, an incredible year to have the opportunity to vote. So we have a historic number of women on the ballot. And and so starting in a place of figuring out who's on your ballot, not just not just at the federal level, but all the way down to the local level and getting to know those candidates, doing your research and making sure that you have your plan to go out and vote. Additionally, you know, talking to neighbors and friends about the importance of seeing diversity on the ballot and not to be afraid to say that, you know, bringing women's voices and perspectives into the fold is a great thing and something that we should celebrate and something that we should lift up. And so Election Day, we have the opportunity to do that. So just making sure that you know who you're going to vote for when you head in and making sure that that sort of slate of candidates represents uh, the, the full spectrum of diversity that this country has to offer. There's a historic number of women on the ballot for a number of reasons. I think this has been building over time. You know, we've seen a plateau in the number of women on the ballot in previous elections. But the last election cycle all the way into this one, we have had a record number of women raise their hand and say that they have interest in running. It's due to women rejecting this status quo of not seeing their uh, their voices represented, not seeing them being you know invited and recruited into these positions of power and stepping up and saying, no way, we're going to do this. And I may or may not wait to be invited. No, actually, I'm going to just go ahead and raise my hand myself and put myself out out there. And it's a real change in the overall sort of energy and atmosphere that we've seen around women in politics and something that's really encouraging. So if you're somebody who's not able to vote on Election Day or perhaps you missed that window to register, there's still time to have a major impact in this election. So you can talk to neighbors and friends about races that matter to you. Check out who's on the ballot locally and and do your research. Um, you know, so often we sort of only look at the top of the ballot and then Election Day comes and everyone's looking for information. So be that source of information. It will be tremendously helpful to the people in your lives and will make a difference on ultimately who gets voted in. So your voice can still have power and you can drive that all the way up to Election Day, including actually drive individuals to vote, get them to to the polls on election day and know that even if you can't step into that ballot box, your your voice can matter. You know, election day will come and go and uh, there will be stories to celebrate and there will be stories that are 
devastating. And all of us, I think, um, you know, need to keep our eye on the ball of what matters in seeing us build a government in this country that reflects this country. And it's not going to happen overnight. And we have to be prepared that it's going to be a bumpy road and we have to be in it for the long haul. And you have to sort of hold on to those success stories and be ready to lift up those that are hurting after the election. And maybe maybe you're going to have to sort of carry some of your friends forward because they're just not going to feel it. Everybody will need sort of their own time if they're if they're feeling particularly disheartened by any of the results. But I think, you know, again, just back to keep your eye on the ball, know that change, while it can feel small sometimes, um, as it builds over time is, is, is what is building towards us having the healthiest possible democracy in this country. And so we can't give up. We have to keep moving forward. We want to thank Erin Luce Cucharo again for that great insight and all of those voices we heard of the women who are trying to bring greater representation to our government. Thank you, Celia. Thanks, Katie, for joining me today on this all-too-important episode. Thanks for spearheading a really important conversation. Thank you, Jada. We wanted to also leave you with a preview of next Monday's episode, which is an incredible conversation with our books editor, Christina Ariola and Rebecca Traster, author of Good and Mad, The Revolutionary Power of Women's Anger. What I hope is that we'll look at it as a turning point in which we actually get closer to representative government in the long term, and that it's not just an aberration, that actually the activation and and energy of these past two years will fundamentally alter the relationship between women and their representative government. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd want to hear what you love most about the show. And you can totally reach us at huddle at bustle.com. This show is produced by Julia Hsu, Michaela Heck, and Anna Parsons. I'm Jada Gomez, and I'll see you next week. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader, too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.